happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 301 here on August 16th, 2023. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School located on the beautiful but kind of smoky University of Montana, camp Montana campus right here in western Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, fresh off his first day of school with kids. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you tonight, sir? Good evening, Jason. I am doing well. I'm glad to be back. Um, thanks for understanding last week. We were actually having kind of a big week in Colorado, and it's good good to be back. So um, how is the weather in Montana? Is it smoky? It is very smoky, and also it um, uh, it's really hot. So it was 100 degrees yesterday. I think oh. it was a little cooler today, just 96 today, and it's supposed to be that hot tomorrow. I think it's going to cool down a little later this week. And thankfully, last week, I was also with family last week, too. My sister was in from Oregon, and uh, luckily, it cooled down a little bit. But yeah, 90, 97 today, I guess, was the high temperature, 99 tomorrow. And then we're back down to the 80s for a little while, so that's good. But oh, lots yeah. of fires, and um, uh, some in Montana, and then just, you know, in the West, as they tend to happen this time of year. And I did notice this morning, for the first time this year, we had a lot of haze in the air. So, Oh, my gosh. Now, didn't didn't you and your wife put air conditioning in a while back? Or have you always yeah. had air conditioning? Yeah, specifically for this reason. Uh, one of the things we did um, uh, during the pandemic was we, we put AC in, in part because, um, you know, we were fine. We are, our, our, our uh, main bedroom is in the, is, is actually in a basement. Um, it was a, the bottom part of a split level um, in addition in our house. And, you know, it stayed pretty cool at night. So that was okay. Uh, and we just get a window fan and call it good. But once the smoke started becoming a yearly reality in Montana, um, it, you know, you can't open the windows and put a window fan in because then you start to cough yourself to sleep. So, uh, that's, we decided to go in that direction and that was very helpful to us because now we can uh, utilize that, especially when the smoke gets thick. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you doing the yeoman's work of articles, and I'll probably follow your lead here. I'm, I've got a few to, to put in. So, but let me ask you a social media question. Yeah. What is, what does your social media use look like currently? Uh, are you p- posting to several platforms? Is, is X still the place for you? What, oh, uh, that's such a dumb name. Um, yes, uh, Twitter's still kind of my main location right now. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why it's a little challenging for me is because I use Buffer to post to multiple locations and mm-hmm. you can, um, you know, and I, I read most of the things on my phone or my iPad. So it's not like I'm sitting on a computer or anything. So it, it would be pretty easy to click a button and post it to threads, for example. Um, although I get, uh, I guess I couldn't do that on a desktop, but uh, threads or, um, certainly, um, uh, certainly you could do that with a uh, Mastodon and Buffer does have a Mastodon feature, but I have to pay money uh, to add the platform. And other than just you, I'm not really connected to that many people on Mastodon. So, I mean, I am convinced that Twitter is just going to look different enough that at some point the conversation about ed tech moves elsewhere. I just don't know what that successor platform looks like. And I would say I, I was very interested, Wes, in your uh, comment a couple weeks back that some of the folks in your circle are moving to LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And I have been spending time more time on LinkedIn. And, and part of that is also 
um, you know, my position and where I'm at and how I engage with others. LinkedIn is actually a place where a lot of good information gets posted that I want to review. So I'm fresh for, for my needs, but I also enjoy LinkedIn now. And I'm also posting more information there. And that is in my buffer account. So I will have to see how it plays out in, in the coming weeks and months. But what about you, sir? Oh, well, it's pretty, pretty fractured. Um, I think maybe, I don't know if I shared it, um, but I did a, a little video a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was in early July, where it was like social media, was it about diversification? Um, I think I'm, I'm actually using nine platforms. Uh, <laughs> and when I, but I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, spam my regular Facebook channel. Um, with all, you know, cause I just, I tend to like to share a lot of articles and podcasts and just kind of, as I'm, I'm listening to things or encountering things. Um, I try to read the articles first usually. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the new platforms for me are threads and blue sky. And then this K 12 leaders, which has been around for a couple of years. Um, but, uh, LinkedIn is in there. Uh, you know, Instagram, but it's different. That's what makes threads weird because I didn't really just follow an ed tech professional crowd on Instagram. And so as you, I think you brought to my attention, threads automatically follows things, which feels weird. Um, but um, yeah, LinkedIn. Um, and, and the good thing is I am serendipitously encountering great things. An example was last night, um, Alice Keeler, who is really big on um, Blue Sky, um, had posted, and then some others, I think maybe she had retweeted, they had a back-to-school conference in 2021, and I hadn't known that and went into that channel and actually found an awesome presentation about Google earth and learned about Google earth Voyager. And I have ended up showing this to my kids today and it's going to affect the geomap project that we're going to be doing soon. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's confusing in, and it's fractured and, and, and it's in a way not, not as simple, I guess, as when so many people are using Twitter. Uh, I have not abandoned Twitter. Um, I don't know, but I, I, I'm living, I'm living kind of a, a bit of a fractured social media lifestyle, I guess, but I'm still finding great stuff. And, and the key is, you know, people who are sharing, teachers who are connecting, it is, it's really a, really a good thing. We're, we're going to continue to, I think, to, to work through this, but I don't think anybody really knows what's, I, no one can predict exactly what's going to happen, but I think it's fairly clear that there's probably not going to be one successor to Twitter that's like, okay, no. we're all on this one now. I don't think that's going to happen. Well, and it makes me truly sad for the ed tech world because I think that Twitter, for better or for worse, is a great sharing platform, and uh, it is less of a great sharing platform than it was, say, you know, 12, 18 months ago, but it's still a pretty good sharing platform. And I think that's really important to getting out the word, right? And, you know, you start to follow experts. And I know, uh, Wes, you have your Yoda list that I also follow your Yoda list uh, that is full of interesting voices uh, that you have been exposed to over time. And if you're a power user in this space, it's actually very easy to create, um, uh, you know, really interesting and meaningful uh, access to information in a way that it would be really hard to do otherwise. And, you know, I, I guess this kind of goes back to 
I started thinking about what the conversations looked like 15 years ago and, um, you know, we're, you know, social taxonomies and the ways we're going to organize information. And a lot of that stuff ended up not being all that true, not because they weren't right, but because the technology has evolved in different ways than we assumed. And certainly AI is going to uh, impact that pretty significantly as well. But I would also argue that this is a simple way that, you know, the social world is a simple way to, to, to curate information, right? You find a, a creator that you like or a sharer that you like. Um, I'm more of a sharer. Wes is more of a creator. And that, you know, creates a, a real opportunity to, to, you know, look at curated information. The internet is no smaller um, uh, than it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. In fact, it's much larger in a lot of ways. And there's a huge diversity of information and something that West shares uh, is something I'm more likely to, to trust. And there has to be a place for that for teachers and educators. And maybe it stays on. I, I can't even get myself to say it X or maybe it ends up uh, being another platform. But I, I don't think I'm a thought leader in this uh, uh, area that, uh, you know, where we should be going. But I hope that gets decided by those that are thought leaders in this space soon so that I can find a place to, you know, focus my attention. Well, I definitely think that the, the opportunity we have to be filters for each other is yeah. only going to increase in importance because yeah. – None of us are going to be able to ingest the entire web, thankfully. But this is amazing, right? We have computers today that have and that do. Um, and we have podcasts. And, you know, just today, and I'm, I'll, I'll do some other Geeks of the Week, but we have a new member of our team in our department at, sc at school, and he shared a couple podcasts. And, man, one of them just blew my mind today. And, like, that opportunity for somebody to just say, hey, have you subscribed to this? I like this show. And and then, you know, you're you're driving to work or you're, you know, on your walk or whatever, and you're spending an hour with someone that has some amazing ideas. It just – that capability is 100% still here. It's not going to matter what Elon or anybody else does with social media platforms. We can still do that. And so I guess I would encourage people to, to dabble with these different platforms. And if you find one or more that you are enjoying and that you are basically, you know, getting some, some positive, uh, fruit from some, your, you know, benefits, you're reaping the harvest of, of good ideas. Um, different people are taking the leads on different platforms in terms of, of sharing lists and stuff like that. And so I just, I think it's, it's just in many ways harder today because, you know, it's, it's confusing, but the, the, and I'll say one more thing, Twitter, one of the things that's so cool about, about Twitter, I'm just going to call it Twitter because I don't want to call it by the new name <laughs> was that it, it, it is still to a, to a degree you can contact authors and journalists and let yes. people know that you're listening and even ask a question and get feedback and sometimes be amplified by them. But I know that as a, a creator as well as sharer, I mean, it's, it's really cool. My wife and I have been doing this like 
mostly Sunday night, although we've skipped a, a bunch of weeks, but we've done like 17 episodes or something about being empty nesters, uh, you know, since January. And there's a, a friend of mine who I'd met in Memphis. I think he's down in Georgia now, but I mean, he, you know, he recorded this long. He's recorded a couple of times, some feedback for us. It's super, super cool. And that really, it reminded me of Bob Sprankle and, and David Warlick and early days of podcasting, like these technologies that we are still continuing to use have the, the same powerful potential to be able to connect us. I mean, here we are, you know, talking Charlotte, North Carolina to uh, Missoula, Montana. We got two live viewers out there. I think my dad's out there. Hey, dad. Um, you know, it's amazing and it's beneficial yeah. and it's good. And so, you know, with all of these powerful technologies, AI, you know, how many, we got like 20, 20 A articles to, to possibly talk about tonight. Incredibly positive and powerful potential and incredibly negative and, and terrible potential. And so, you know, any kind of powerful technology is going to have, have multiple sides. So I would just encourage yeah. educators out there to continue to, pers to persist in seeking collaboration and seeking um, just, you know, inspiration from other other teachers who are sharing and connecting because you know it doesn't it really i don't know it it's 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 a really it's an in a, a positive thing to me to think that yes bad things have been happening to platforms and people being replatformed and whatever but that does not need and it, and I do not believe it will stop our collaboration as educators and our ability to be more and be better because of the ways that we connect. And I just encourage people to keep finding ways to do that. And that's honestly, hopefully this podcast can serve in that role for whoever happens to be listening with the, the links that we share and the things that we're running into. We're, we're being filters for each other and then hopefully for others too. And that's a positive role. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, the, the bottom line for me is, I mean, it's just, I'm not even entirely sure that I could have imagined the world that we're in today, even though I have been a user of computers for 35 years, really. Um, is that right? No, it's been longer than that, actually. It's been closer to 40 years. And, um, you know, when I first, I, I think I've talked about this a little bit in the past. My mom was a bookkeeper and was one of the first people in our town to really adopt a computerized accounting. And this is, this is like not even like PC days. We were using a CPM based machine. Um, uh, called a K Pro 4 at the time with two eight inch floppy disk drives and just wild stuff. But, um, so I've been around uh, for a while on this technology and I remember 15 years ago when I sat with colleagues, uh, my colleagues from across the state and rewrote Montana uh, state tech standards, um, uh, during that time that I was really fascinated by the notion of Ustream.tv, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, has evolved and became different tools and eventually shut down. But now, you know, the, this podcast that, that Wes and I put on together, um, you know, we are able to do that. In context of we are live broadcasting from uh, almost coast to coast uh, with each other. We get an hour each week to talk through issues and work things out and technology and push and, and, and challenge each other. And we are to a live audience, which if you told me that 20 years ago, sorry, uh, if, if you told me that 20 years ago, that this is where we be at, I would think that that was insane 
And, you know, I worked at a TV station in high school. That was my uh, high school job was I was a production assistant for um, uh, 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 the NBC affiliate in Great Falls, Montana. And, you know, I was totally into the, the nine satellite feeds that we had. I thought that was wild. Um, I had a person. And it was. And it was. Yeah, that was. And it was totally wild. And um, so, yeah, I let's not diminish the connections that we have. And even though these, these platforms are likely to change and who the heck knows what AI is going to do to all this, right? It's clearly going to evolve all these tools in, in, in some direction or another, but I am really, I think your message Wes, that we need to stay connected with one each other to have these conversations and push and help each other, I think is, is a really important one. I will assure everyone, we will get to some articles tonight. Uh, by the way, if you want to go to edtechsr.com slash, links you can get to the articles which we may discuss we'll discuss some but two quick things i um i had a very uh, positive stream yard experience because of thanks thanks to you for our past 300 episodes um one of the things we were going to colorado for was to inter my mother's ashes in the cemetery at the air force academy and uh when she we had her her funeral in February, the church recorded her, her memorial and gave us the video um, and actually put it on YouTube. And it was really wonderful for other people to see it. In fact, for my dad, I think he's, you know, he's seen that multiple times. It's been really positive. And so similarly, I thought, hmm, I wonder if we could, we could live stream this uh, with StreamYard. I'm going to give it a shot. Well, that was going to be on Friday. Wednesday, our youngest daughter was graduating from basic training at the Air Force Academy and having a parade. And it turned out there was no live stream. So literally that morning on the way, I had my daughter on the computer, you know, helping me out. I had made a little thumbnail, uh, created the StreamYard links. Um, I'd already connected my personal Facebook and um, YouTube uh, to it. And so literally we had hundreds of viewers. We had over 200 live viewers watching this parade on Wednesday. And within a day, there were like over a thousand people that had viewed it on, on YouTube and a lot on Facebook. And I don't know how many, but yes, the platform is just phenomenal and 5G connectivity. In fact, I drafted a post that I, I didn't finish. I need to finish it this week kind of tips because in 2000, 2007, I went to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Uh, and we had a, a little collaboration with our, our PBS affiliate. Um, and the goal was to do a video conference, you know, from Fort Island live with survivors of the USS Oklahoma um, and, and the Pearl Harbor attack. And we did that. Um, but you couldn't live stream from a phone because they were still on edge connectivity. And Honolulu was just getting 3G and it and it wasn't very good. And so anyway, it is... It's fantastic. And the other thing I want to say, just you've talked a lot, I think you said before we started, about AI in the last few weeks. Can you summarize for us? This is a good synthesis challenge. Yeah. <laughs> you've been well, doing some challenges and I guess or some you've been doing some presentations. Yeah. Has this helped you synthesize that as far as our conversations here and kind of what it has? Yeah. And, and the thing I would report, so I've, I've talked to um, several administrator groups over the last few weeks on AI. I was at the Mountain Moot in Helena, um, a conference that, that Wes has virtually been to before. Um, and uh, in wonderful conversations. And the thing about AI that's interesting is that, uh, and I actually had a, a good friend of mine who's a, who's a tech director in a larger school district in Montana. We were texting back and forth last night, and we're going to get together uh, next week and chat AI for a little while. 
and he said that uh, he's found that short conversations are of almost no use with AI. That if you can't get in the muck pretty quick and dig on it, you're not going to get you're not going to move forward on it in your head. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Uh, and and you know, just shouting out some of my my colleagues in this space. The the one I I think about a lot is John Fila from Minnesota, who is a, a great distance learning leader in his own right, but also has done an amazing job. I think of trying to challenge us to think about AI in a different way and in classrooms. And where I'm at with this right now is that um, I, I I mean, I don't think we're prepared for it, but to be honest, I don't know how we could be. And I think one of the things that's really challenging about uh, 2023 is that uh, we have some other things going on in education right now, right? Uh, large challenges to the model of schooling and, um, you know, certainly a lot of post pandemic uh, stuff is, is still lingering. And, you know, all that is a, it's a really challenging thing. Um, but the, the message I've been trying to give is you need to understand where this is going. You need to develop policies and conversations around it, but also know that there's no magic button for you to push to fix this. And in fact, it's a conversation that starts now and probably doesn't end for several years. And um, in my mind, I feel like in a lot of cases that we, we, we didn't have that conversation with the internet, right? The internet went from zero to available in about four years time period uh, in, in many schools, not most schools and certainly not all schools, but, you know, in a lot of cases, we avoided some of those conversations and we could because you could detect plagiarism largely when it's copy and pasted from the Internet. And um, and, you know, an archive, you know, if 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 access to information was that radical, then libraries itself would have relegated education to a, a second class citizenship. But as it turns out, wide availability of libraries is important for an educated, educated citizenry, but only after we teach people how to use libraries. Right. Like it's not a, a, an information access in itself. Um, the other the other thing that I keep thinking about, too, is I've heard from a number of administrators uh, and teachers, for that matter, that have started using ChatGPT to do the crappy parts of their job, um, you know, writing reports, writing grant proposals. Um, I won't uh, get in any specifics here as to not get anyone in any trouble, but, you know, this requirement or that requirement that is largely a... Um, for lack of a better way of putting it, a bureaucratic uh, form more than anything else, even if it's, its intent is good, it, it, it isn't that an implementation. And they've, they've had a, a large language model do that work for them. And they said not only was it fast, um, we spent more of our time fixing it so it was better and we had a good first draft to work with so that we didn't have to, you know, fuss or muss about it. And I know some people find that to be distasteful and others think that that's, that's, um, you know, cheating. I'll put that in italics, but you know, the, it, it, these tools are pretty powerful. And I think we need to remember that even if we are cautious about how we implement them. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, hey, you know, sometimes we'll say on the show and, you know, available to speak and whatever. So apparently, uh, yes, you West found... and I both, you know, uh, contact us, um, you know, um, on the internets. Um, don't ask AI. So, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, on that note, um, I guess we should probably, uh, talk about some articles. I've managed to throw a few in here, uh, but where would you like to start tonight? 
Uh, yeah, well, um, let me start with, well, there's a lot of interesting, um, AI articles, aren't there? Um, so, uh, this article actually piqued my interest, uh, and we, I wanted to talk about it a couple weeks back, but we didn't get to it. Um, Pearson has announced that they are, um, eyeing, um, revenue growth because of ChatGPT. And what it's telling me is the publishers are now here and in integrating these tools. And, What's interesting about this is that um, uh, the the they talked to CEO of Pearson, Andy Bird, and it's interesting because he admits that some of the <laughs> some of the tools that they're working, I mean, some of the tools they're creating um, are just you know ChatGPT implementations, right? It's got an API. It's relatively inexpensive to plug into it, so they plug it into you know existing software for whatever reason. But the reason why I find this to be so interesting is because I think. One of the great questions that exists about ChatGPT is, is, is well, I should say generative AI are what are its sources, right? And that what it, you know, where is it getting the information from? And that's a very different thing if you're talking about something that's well covered and well established on the internet. And the example I've been using in presentations over the last six weeks is uh, I have ChatGPT start off by writing what were or write a history of the causes of World War One. That is a well written about topic. It is all over the internet. There's plenty of not copyrighted sources available, including books from the time that ChatGPT is likely. I should just say large language models because I'm using Anthropic more than I'm using uh, ChatGPT right now. But um, all the large language models have trained on a lot of data about the causes of World War One. And it's also pretty easy to vet uh, that information as well because I'm a history teacher, right? So when it comes up with the standard uh, answers, nationalism and imperialism and uh, treaty problems and the Franco-Prussian War and all the things that, that I would have talked about as a world or U.S. history teacher, that's super interesting to me. But when you get to a more narrow topic or more modern topic, then a lot of that history is suddenly up to interpretation, right? Like if you ask for, you know, write a history of the Obama administration that I know how I would write that. And I would also guess I would know how a probably a neutral historian or a, uh, dare I say, balanced historian might look at the Obama administration. But if you ask ChatGPT to do that, you know, there's some pretty diverse views out there. And if it disagrees with you, you might scream bias at that point. But imagine for a moment that someone who has a lot of text available written by, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, experts that have written a high school age U.S. history textbook or a middle school age U.S. history textbook or a college level U.S. history textbook can use that to limit the, the access to what's pulling from in the large language model. That's suddenly a lot more interesting. And I think that, and I'm sure this is where Pearson's going with this, that you can trust, I'll put that also in quotation marks, the Pearson product, because we have these scholarly written books that it's basing the answer off of. Yes, they're plugging ChatGPT into it, but that's only to learn how to write and analyze, right? In the end, you're pulling from, you know, the Pearson books. So I, I thought that was a really interesting article on that tells you that, you know, stuff is about to come in this arena. Absolutely. And yeah, as the, as the publishers move in, um, things are going to change as they, as they frequently do. Yep. Um, I put this one, I, I thought I could have almost done this one as a geek of the week, but I put this one under AI. This is 
the best podcast I have listened to about AI to date. So it is just phenomenal. Um, Larry Lessig, who uh, many will recognize because of his work with Creative Commons, um, but also with other things too, including um, a fight for transparency and you know, I would just say representative democracy, interviewed Tristan Harris. And Harris is the former design ethicist from Google who, with others, put together the Social Dilemma documentary a couple years ago that really gained a lot of traction. And I think it had some records for the number of, you know, views as a documentary that, that it had. The title of this, and this is in Lessig's podcast, Another Way, this is a preview from a book that he's working on. It's called Taking Seriously the Threats Posed by AI with Tristan Harris. It's from July 21st. Um, actually, in the, back to our social media conversation, I learned about this through LinkedIn, and I would have to think carefully, and I'm not going to be able to get it, of, of who I who I heard it from. But anyway, that's an example of, oh my gosh, I found this from LinkedIn. Oh, I found this from, you know, Blue Sky or, or for, from somewhere else. But here's one of the many things that they talk about that was helpful. Tristan calls social media our, our societal and cultural first contact with AI. And basically, we've talked all the, you know, lots of times on the show about the tech correction. Are we going to see, you know, a backlash to what we're ha is happening with social media? And, and there has been, right? There have been some things, there have been some state level laws that have been written. We don't have federal privacy law yet. But Harris is basically saying, you know, first contact was not meant much in terms of consequences for social media companies. And now we have second contact, which, which is, which is with these ex much, much more powerful tools. And both he and Lessig, who are really smart people that I respect a lot, definitely believe that unregulated left to, to companies, this is, this will have very, very negative consequences. And, you know, they have different analogies, but, we wouldn't have let nuclear weapons just be developed and handled by private companies. Hey, we trust you guys. Regulation can be problematic. Let's just, let's just let the marketplace sort it out. No, we recognize that nuclear weapons have such power and such destructive potential that they are going to need to be regulated. They're going to need to be handled in a special way. And they are saying the same thing is true. Um, some things that we've talked about on the show before about Microsoft and just their rush to, to get this thing out as quickly as possible. Like there's, they're not saying that the companies are evil, but, but similar to social media, when you have a goal, like let's maximize engagement, let's keep people scrolling. Let's figure out, let's literally hook a supercomputer with AI up to your brain and let's figure out what you are most likely to want to see again so we can keep you hooked. That has a lot of consequences, not only for individuals and mental health and wellness, but also for society in terms of democracy, uh, in terms of elections and, and all kinds of things. So um, the, the implication here is that we need to have some thoughtful regulation because uh, these tools are, we're just, con we're continuing to trust the private companies mostly to do the right thing. And, you know, they are not going to act in the, in the, in, in the interest of, for instance, you know, representative democracy or the values of the, the constitution or the universal declaration of right of human rights or whatever. Claude, by the way, that you had told me about Claude AI, um, that has been phenomenal. That was, you talked a couple episodes ago about, I think how they're trying to, 
to do their alignment with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and very overtly trying to um, make their, you know, talk about how they want to align their AI to be ethical. But you can upload a 10 megabyte PDF, uh, PDF file to, or maybe it's other formats too, but I'm able to just grab the transcript straight off of, you know, youtubetranscript.com or whatever from our show, make that a PDF, throw it in there. And you have taught me this as well. Take an example of a previous summary that I've written and yep. then tell Claude, can you please write a summary of this huge document that's the transcript of the entire hour long show in the same style? And it's been awesome. And that, you know, saves 20 to 30, 30 minutes. So anyway, I highly recommend that podcast. And I think that podcasts like this uh, should be part of what we're doing to try to get our heads around what's happening, where this is going and what we need to do. Couldn't agree more. And, um, and, and by the way, and, uh, Claude too from Anthropic is unbelievable. And somewhere in me, I really wish Wes, I had your discipline to sit down and write and create more because I have a, a something brewing in my head about how constitutional AI, which is uh, Anthropic's uh, notion of uh, adding guardrails to AI to make it a little more. Uh, well, to make to make make it mindful of 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 it, the ethics that they want to be able to 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 compete, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, my idea there is that constitutional AI is also probably the way we can create an education friendly AI tool. That we don't want the work of learning to be done by an AI model. Yes, there's certainly a lot of places for it, and there's a lot of ways that AI could be an extraordinary enhancer to learning. But the bottom line is, is that we don't want students to copy and paste a prompt uh, uh, into uh, 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 an AI model and say, write it for me. So I keep wondering if, if what constitutional AI means in education is if, you know, we, we can, uh, we have some, some control in the background of what the AI model would do. So you have to use our AI model. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a education focused one. And so that's, that's what we're going to ask you to do in this particular context. And with that information, um, you know, we're going to say, you know, you can brainstorm with this. You can use it for whatever you want to, but it's just not going to write it for you. It's, it's going to always answer back. No, let me help you write this by brainstorming or working through an editing process with you or, or being restricted until you feel as though that a student is ready for having to do, write something for you, maybe if at all. Um, and then go from there. And, you know, I've heard a lot of reference to a pretty common refrain from the last 20 years that assessment needs to change in classrooms to make it not Googleable, right? That's a, a pretty constant applause line at, at most ed tech conferences. And, you know, and, and there's something to that, although I think it's more nuanced than that because of learning science. That's the problem with AI in this context is that, um, you know, if you can't Google it, you, you probably can chat GPT it, right? And the evidence I have for that is that I have experimented by finding, you know, sample assessments online that are not Googleable, right? And as it turns out, um, I, you know, was able to write a response with, with, with chat GPT or Anthropic or Bard or a Bing or, you know, all the tools that are now available. And, you know, and again, these aren't, pay for tools, they're integrated into the Bing web search. They are integrated into Google Docs. They're integrated into Canva. 
Um, and those, our, our students have access to, to those tools. So, you know, just going back, we can't ignore this. I don't know what the answer is yet. I keep getting maybe a baby step closer about every 10 days or so to knowing what my answer for this is. But I also think we've got a lot of discussion let the, yet to come and we just need to be very thoughtful about who we have, where we go ahead. Yeah, I would say the answer is not abstinence. One of the podcasts I was listening to today, that that was what the person was saying is, I just don't want to use it. I'm just not going to use it at all. And I think that's a bit like someone who said, I'm not going to use the Internet. You know, I'm just going to stick with microfish and and uh, paper magazines and, and paper books. There's a lot of knowledge that people have gained over the years with those tools. Um, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, someone is is is. That, that, you know, people are going to make different choices uh, in, in a whole lot of different respects. But in order to be relevant in an information and media landscape that is dominated with it by a new medium, I really think that, you know, it's incumbent on every educator to be Internet savvy uh, and to be using the Web. And I also think that we need to be using social media to some extent. Um, I will say the same thing about AI. So, yeah, the an- it, I don't know. The answer is not, like we can't foresee the future. Are we going to how much job displacement are we going to have? <clears throat> you know, what is this going to mean for for the economy? And, and you know, is this an existential threat to to democracy in our in our society, in our world? We don't know. Uh, I mean, AI literally has the possibility. We're right now, you know, with climate climate change and the heat waves. We had the hottest July on record ever. Like literally, I think AI could discover some could discover, could announce, could figure out uh, a very novel way of capturing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, and we could potentially, I mean, that, that could, that could be a real game changer for us, for the planet. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I mean, I'm listening to um, uh, right now a podcast that's talking about, and there's a Ted talk I haven't watched yet, but about, you know, neurobiology and AI and the way these tools um, are being used and how, did you know this, I guess, a lot of companies are going to start sensing brain waves and brain yeah. activity out of earbuds and headphones. And yes. there's just, I mean, oh my gosh, some good and some bad. But, you know, I think that, um, yeah, we're just, we, and, and can we handle the speed of change? Well, and, and oh, this, is so, this is such a rabbit hole. Uh, everything uh, about this topic is a rabbit hole, which is the reason why we can't seem to get through more than three articles a week as of late. A couple thoughts. The first one was that um, when I was doing the research for my dissertation, and uh, uh, my dissertation was about intelligent personal assistance. So think Siri, uh, Madam A from Amazon, um the whatever the Microsoft one was called. Um, and it's like, that's where it, it kind of places in history, sadly, but a uh, Cortana, excuse me. So, um, and, and I studied them, whether they created more engagement uh, in, in, a, um, uh, in, in a classroom. It was experimental design. I had a control group and, a, um, and a, an experimental group. Um, so I was able to, to measure a measure of engagement. And I don't know if that was the right thing to do or the perfect thing to do. That's not really what you're working on in dissertation. You're just trying to practice the skills of a study. Um, but one of the things that I started digging into when I was trying to find some some uh, sources to help me interpret my data was not only w- was Siri and the other like intelligent personal assistants generally considered to be stagnant at that point, 
which exp- I think I used to help explain the suggested data that said that students weren't impacted either way uh, uh, from that standpoint, right? Um, but also, I started experimenting within some concepts of, you know, direct brain interfaces. And I think there was some, I think they were Norwegian researchers that were looking at ways to that. Well, and, and what I talked about my doctoral advisor about was this kind of crazy notion. I've never liked the, you know, don't learn something that you can't or that you can Google. And in part because, you know, there's a, a million things in the world that say knowing something's better than Googling something. Now, if you don't know it, Google it. That's not what I'm saying. But if you have a choice between learning something and not learning something and waiting to Google it, learn something, right? That's what, what I would argue to you uh, to, to be able to, to really explain things. But imagine for a moment that there's an interface with your brain that not only was able to detect where you didn't have enough background knowledge to make sense of something to where it could automatically generate that information for you, maybe even insert it in your brain. I mean, this is some real, um, uh, you know, red pill, blue pill crap that I'm talking about here. Right. But that's a, a, you know, that's not out of the realm of possibility. And I I think it was an article that we didn't get to, but uh, security researchers, have warned that there's a that that there's a way now for people to listen to you like you know you've probably heard a colleague typing on a zoom meeting before i've been caught typing on more than one zoom meeting so i have to mute a lot i know that's what's happening in the background with your uh, right now uh, mute too wes um the <laughs> the 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 idea here is that you can listen to especially a louder keyboard and be able to tell what words and letters they're typing Right. And if you can imagine AI models that, you know, uh, can sense all this information and make sense of it and then deal you back information, like it's just it's some real like Skynet, you know, it's not a tumor. It's it's real next level stuff. And this is not in 2070. Right. Which, by the way, thank goodness, I'll be long gone by then. But um, it's, it's, it's in the next year or two that they're talking about prototypes of this stuff. Yes. Yes. Well, and I might be able to do it as a geek of the week cause I haven't finished the podcast yet, but the one that I'm, that I'm on is, uh, right along those, those lines. So it's the, yeah, the connection to biotech. Okay. Um, let's do, let's do a few more articles. Can you talk about this secret Google project Gemini? Do you want to do that article? Yeah. So from Chrome unboxed on August 16th. So today, uh, they talk about that Google is, is really, really, really doubling and tripling down on, on its AI plays. And uh, they are citing the information, which is uh, a wonderful source that costs money. So I know a lot of, of, of leaders, um, uh, do subscribe to the information. It might get to a point where that's worth it to me someday, but, um, uh, in my media budget, but they're talking about a new project called Gemini. Quoting from the article, it's an initiative led by uh, Sergey Brin, one of the Google co-founders, um, who has kind of rejoined active stuff in the company. That he's he'd be plugged in with AI at the company as well as a senior researcher behind uh, the Google DeepMind. A handful of folks in the Google Brain are also on the project. All this on one plate just goes to show you how serious Google is about AI. And it's interesting because if you look back in the archives of our show, we talked about things like Google was getting in trouble because uh, they fired someone who was ringing alarm bells about AI and, and ethics about AI. And then, of course, Google is seen as a 
distant competitor at this point in comparison to ChatGPT and other large language models. And, you know, that said, Google, my understanding is that Google has been really aggressively researching AI for its 25-year existence. Um, so they have a lot they can bring and, here. And AI drives search and it drives speech-to-text. And, yes. yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things. This The, the LLM stuff is, is sort of what arrived on the scene in November and is so new, but... But yeah, it's AI has been a part yes. of this landscape for a long time. Yes. It's just that with the LLMs and there's like a critical mass, I guess, with the, the neural nets and the ways that these have been engineered that we're just right. seeing this explosion. Well, well, and a lot of companies backed off of neural nets, including um, I think it was Apple's one one company at one point said it was just not worth their time because they they thought it was too resource intensive to get to this point. And I have read that a couple of times in the last six weeks. Um, and that's interesting too, from the standpoint of, um, you know, again, this stuff is happening pretty darn quickly and surprising even the nerds. In terms of resources, quick story, Cheyenne Mountain. I don't know, did you ever watch Stargate? Were you ever a fan of that? My wife loves yeah, Stargate. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, right. So Cheyenne Mountain is where NORAD, mm-hmm. the North Atlantic, yep. um, uh, radar, basically where, where, where they track ICVMs and they're supposed to like, there's, you know, some, some, so much kiloton nuclear warhead they can withstand. Someone was just telling me that they somebody did an analysis because they figured out the electricity bill, which the Air Force was paying for NORAD. And based on that, they were able to calculate the supercomputer capacity that they have inside the mountain and that it's like more than New York City. Yeah. So vast. And that's military. That's that's not Google. But you can be rest assured that Google, you know, uh, is is not sitting back on all this. No, absolutely not. And one of the points they make um, is that that this is probably going to be closer to uh, Microsoft's Copilot. This is what Google's going to do to make Copilot a reality. And we haven't talked much about Copilot on the podcast, but that's going to be the professional tool set, the name of the professional tool set that um, Microsoft is going to add to Microsoft 365. And I, I think it's priced at $30 a month. Maybe it's $50. It's, it's not dirt cheap, but not radically. It's not like we're charging 199 per seat for it. And I think it starts off with business accounts and not personal accounts. But um, but the bottom line is, is that uh, at some point, I think there's going to be four or five of these kind of suites of tools. And I'm almost certain, based on the information we have about Apple working on this, that they're going to have something that works in, in, in their suites, too. Um, we there, There's an article a couple weeks back that we didn't get to, but I know that apparently Google is working on directly integrating um, generative AI into Chrome OS, not just the browser, but the operating system, which makes um, Chrome OS that much more interesting to me as it evolves as an operating system. Um, but yeah, a lot of interesting stuff here and certainly, um, you know, a lot to come. So I'm going to say something hoping that, you know, a terrorist is, is not listening to our show. Um, I was, I've listened, you know, to a bunch of podcasts about the Ukraine and I was listening to, a, I think it was a U.S. Air Force three-star general and a, you know, air marshal from Britain talking and, and they were like, well, we don't really want to give Russia ideas. And anyway, they were limiting, but this article talks about this new tool being able with verbal instructions to readily read flowcharts, analyze control software, the capacity for bad actors to do incredibly sophisticated things. It's just going to be staggering. Um, and so this is why Larry Lessig, Tristan Harris, others 
are saying that we need to be careful to try and get this right because there's a lot of reasons why people are racing. And this is article is an example of it. Google is racing to beat Microsoft. You know, the, the companies that, you know, OpenAI actually wants regulation to happen now because they don't want there be, to be too many players. And if this gets regulated now, the barrier to entry is going to be high and there will be fewer players, but it'll be all, honestly easier for the government or international organizations to regulate a fewer number of players than a large one. But anyway, great article, good find. And um, it just kind of feels like we're holding on without anybody driving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how it feels like uh, for me too. And and to be clear, like obviously Wes and I are interested in the educational impacts of this and there will be profound for sure. But at the same time, let's not forget that this is probably going to change just about everything. So I really do believe it is. Okay. What are we doing time? Why don't we, uh, you want to hit it? Can we do a few other articles. Or do you just want to stay on AI? Um, well, or you can do another one. Keep going. Keep going. I'm... Quickly go to the top of the hour here. Um, we got about 13 is, minutes. So this is yeah. an interesting one. Um, and, and this was from a couple weeks back, but ChatGPT has a new feature that I think might be really useful to teachers. It basically, um, allows you to get into the settings of ChatGPT and explain who you are. So, and why you're using ChatGPT. And so this is from The Verge on July 20th. And essentially it's a dialogue box. Uh, in the settings, and you can say something like, I am a fourth grade teacher that's looking to utilize uh, uh, or use to create classroom materials, and so my, my materials need to be, you know, aimed at a fourth grade learner, and then it just remembers that in perpetuity. So um, if you are, you know, really generating, they call them custom instructions, if you're really generating a lot of information uh, that's that's consistent. Um, you know, the way I do that uh, is, um, um, you know, I, I create a, a text. Why I use Simple Note for this? I, I to post all my kind of instructional pieces on Simple Note, just copy and paste them to ChatGPT. But it asks two questions in the custom instructions interface. What would you like ChatGPT to know to provide you better responses? And it gives you some, some quote unquote thought starters. Um, where are you based? What do you do for work? What are your hobbies and interests? What subjects can you talk about for hours? What are some of your goals? And then it also asks, um, how would you like ChatGPT to respond? Should you be formal or casual? How long or short should responses be? How do you want to be addressed? Should ChatGPT have opinions on topics that remain neutral? And that's really interesting, right? Because if you are generating content, uh, with ChatGPT, like case studies or something, then you might be able to add in, you know, tweaked instructions over time that make it a lot quicker to do so. This is the customization of the engine to a greater degree than we've seen before. And as we've talked about Google Bard and all the things that many of us put into Google, calendar, Gmail, documents, and, and the AI being able to ingest all of that and then know us, there's a tremendous positive potential there. Um, for instance, for it to be an email assistant, you know, I think I will, I might dance a jig uh, at the point, And I think it is, I think it will be coming that Google is going to come up with some kind of phenomenal um, AI email assistant that is oh, going wow. to really help curate vast amounts and, and we'll be able to do it verbally and say, Hey, Bard, you know, blank, do, do such and such to my email and, and working with, with vast amounts of email. So I think, I think that's coming, but me yeah. too. Yeah. 
Okay, um, let's do, uh, we got about 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> here's a positive one. Here's an Apple one. Okay, this is 9 to 5 Mac on August 9th. Uh, family rescued from wildfires in Maui thanks to iPhones, emergency SOS via satellite. A few shows back, uh, we did a, a um, article that was about, I think, some hikers in Utah, some college-aged kids that were out. They were out of sight of cell coverage. Somebody fell down some kind of slot canyon or something, and somebody had an iPhone 14, was able to point it at the sky, and a helicopter came and evacuated them. And similar, um, there was uh, some folks that were outside of cellular coverage and the emergency SOS on the iPhone 14 uh, bailed them out. And so, yay, there's a, a, a good example of, of, of Apple technology. And by the way, um, did you ever, I'm, I started to watch tonight and I watched about a third of it, the um, developer conference, the WWDC uh, presentation from June, just to watch the entire thing. No, I, I heard ex- it was really good though. I am excited about iOS 17 and yeah. uh, some of the features that they got. We can, we can talk more about that later, but that's probably going to drop, you know, this fall. I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, let's see. Where do you want to go next? And here's one I want to talk about. Uh, this happened in early July, and I think it happened during, or maybe just after ISTE, but, um, Wakelet has announced that they are no longer offering free Wakelet, um, in the way we're used to. And one of the reasons why that's interesting to me is that, I, and I don't really understand it yet, apparently there's Wake, Wakelet Legacy, Wakelet Legacy, which is the product that we're used to. And then there's now all sorts of individual, individual pro education, education pro, um, that allows you to, to, to pay for the service. And, um, uh, uh, if you created an account before July 4th, 2023, your legacy. Right. Yeah. Which is me and you and an awful lot of teachers and, um, legacy will continue to allow unlimited items and collections, unlimited share, unlimited publishing, unlimited collaborative collections, unlimited spaces. My guess is at some point this stops too as well, right? Uh, just because of the nature of, of how this has worked with other tools in the past. But the reason why I mention this is because, um, uh, and they, they did do a blog post on this is that they do come to terms with the fact that, uh, you know, they pride themselves on being a, a free platform. Um, over the last year, we've spoken to so many of you in the community, the teachers, the librarians, the tech coaches. Thank you for all the feedback. And we're going to introduce these new changes. Um, you know, the, the premium plans will, will be the first to get, uh, you know, premium features and, and yada, yada, yada. And the, they, they, they say it very plainly. Building a platform like Wakelet comes at a cost, especially with an ever increasing number of students and educators using it across the world. The engineering involved in creating the solutions you love, along with the support we provide for this incredible community is something we want to continue in, in, into the future. Um, but they need income, uh, source for this. And, I just think that this is yet another example where the free internet, uh, is, is, is largely dead. I don't think Wakelet ever had an advertising model, which is one of the reasons why I was using it. And I haven't stopped using Wakelet for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that they are going to, they're allowing us to keep, um, you know, the legacy accounts, uh, uh, at least for some time. But, you know, it, it just changes things. And again, this is not an anti-Wakelet thing at all. I think it's one of the best tools available. It's a really wonderful way to, to, to share a large group of links, uh, with, uh, all sorts of interesting pieces behind it. Um, uh, uh, and I, I think this is an interesting piece. And so, um, they, I, I don't think they quote, oh, they do. Uh, so the end of it, there's still a free, 
a free account you can get if you don't have one yet, but it's limited to um, uh, three collaborative collections, and then you can only publish four collections. So you can use it as like a personal uh, piece, but not as a, a, a that way. And then you have to pay six bucks a month for that. And they don't have any pricing posted for the education versions. So you're supposed to email them for a quote. Um, which suggests to me that maybe they don't know or it's too much. So they, they're, it's going to freak people out from part of that. But um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting development and it just tells me, which has been really true for some time now, the free internet that we're used to is just not really the way it works anymore. And you're either paying it through advertising or actual dollars. So that's a good segue to my article. You need a geek of the week, sir. So if you want oh, to toss that in there. Uh, so this article on the, that note is from Substack and I just love this. Um, the article is called a better internet for readers and it was from uh, August 10th. I'm loving Substack and in the course yeah, of working through the social media fractured landscape of all these choices and whatever, um, I have started to use the Substack app and to read the folks that I subscribe to. And I, I don't think I'm paying anyone yet. And I'm very, very close to a couple folks of, of subscribing, uh, actually, um, uh, Angry Planet probably. And then, uh, Steven Johnson are, are two folks I love to read. Uh, Casey Newton is one I enjoy listening to with Hard Fork, and I was just looking at an article today that was uh, one of his subscribers only because, you know, well, we have a Substack Right now ours is just free. We haven't done anything, and we're not we – don't, I don't think we have any plans to do anything different with it. We're just – we're using it as a way for people to get the links we talk about and those we don't talk about in your email. And so, hey, sign up for our Substack. Uh, but you have, as the Substack publisher, number one, it's free. So the reason I moved my newsletter that I – haven't written on in probably almost a year um, is because like MailChimp and these other mail things, you have to pay, you know, this monthly fee, but Substack um, has a way of monetizing. And basically I'm really enjoying the reading experience. Uh, they mentioned Google reader in this and uh, those of us that loved Google reader. And so I just, it's almost a geek of the week. I just recommend if you haven't check out the Substack app They are It's also great the way that it recommends related Substack writers. Um, and it's really enabling, I think a large number of journalists and writers to be able to get supported with micropayments. Um, and it's a really good reading experience. So great article. Substack's awesome. And I think the app is great. And I've only started to use that over the summer and I've been yeah. really happy with it. And there's a ton of great Substack creators. Uh, and uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Anna East, who is a former Montana Teacher of the Year and works uh, 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 at our staff at NTDA, has a wonderful Substack that she writes twice a week. And it's it's great writing. A lot of it's uh, autobiographical and um, and it's a, just a really nice platform that, that prioritizes simple distribution of content. And um, I love it. It's pretty great. Here's another quick one. This is from uh, your kind of neck of the woods up there in the Pacific Northwest. This was the Seattle Times on August 8th. I thought this was pretty, pretty interesting. We, we, it's been a while since we talked about January 6th or any of that stuff. But far-right Patriot Front members sue leftist activists for allegedly leaking their identities. And so this is a lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court in Western Washington. Um, and there was an individual 
who used a false name to join this white supremacist group Patriot Front. But once he was inside, he took pictures at his get-togethers in the Pacific Northwest, surreptitiously recorded members' license plates, used hidden microphones to record conversations, uh, and then he provided all this to law enforcement, and this led to arrests. And Well, actually, it led to doxing, um, which, by the way, is a good term. If you're not familiar with that, that is a media literacy term. Um, these five plaintiffs um, had their private information put out on the Internet, and they alleged they were fired from their jobs, they were threatened at their homes, their tires were slashed, there were other consequences. So anyway, it's fascinating. Um, you know, it's also, of course, a, a concern that we have different extremist groups continuing to operate. Um, but I thought, you know, sort of from a social media standpoint, um, this was a – anyway, this was an interesting article. So that's just sort of a random one. That's why it's under the miscellaneous category. There you go. Well, anything else you'd like to do? Well, I'll just mention about that particular piece too, that that lawsuit's super interesting to me because it seems like that there, there are a lot of folks that just don't have a consistent view on what's appropriate and what's not right. Like doxing's bad if it's, if, if it's aimed at you, but it's not bad if it's aimed at someone you don't like sort of a thing. And I think that that's a, um, uh, we have a lot of tough conversations to come and, you know, with the court system right now with historically low approval ratings, um, you know, it's our only avenue for doing this, but I hope, I hope we're able to, to have these conversations meaningfully and draw the lines that we can all agree with. Okay. Well, I think we've hit the hour mark. Well, Dr. Fryer, what is your geek of the week? Okay, well, I'm going to overshare, but I'll go quick. Uh, they're all AI-related. Surprise, surprise. Uh, ste- what is, how do you pronounce this? Uh, Stealthy. Uh, this fellow, who now has video as well as pictures, uh, is on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, and it's not really his person, I guess. He's created it. Uh, has himself in all kinds of different places. Uh, yesterday, or this but most recent post that I saw, it was, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, uh, and uh, Elon Musk uh, and himself in a gladiatorial arena uh, talking about, you know, the fight that they were going to have. He's with Albert Einstein. He's with Elvis. Um, it's just a pretty dramatic example of what is possible with deep fakes and using generative AI tools to be able to basically craft whatever scene you want with whoever you want. Um, and then I put in, uh, I want to say, three different personal chat GPT use examples that I've just documented with uh, a Google sheet, basically describing here's the prompt that I use for chat GPT. And then here's the result. Um, I got it to calculate a pretty cool spreadsheet formula for me yesterday. I needed to take the list of cur- of students from last year that had um, Minecraft accounts. And then I've got kids in new classes and I needed to tell our IT department the new accounts to create. And so it was able to cross-reference that and I didn't have to figure it out. And I did that in like 10 minutes. I made an assessment rubric. Thank you, sir, because you had talked about that weeks ago uh, for the first web design assignment that I was using. And it put it in this great table and I copied and pasted it. And then for my media literacy class, for the first time, I used AI to generate a video. And I used this tool called Pictory.ai. Um, it took me about 20 minutes because I didn't like it exactly. And so I had to go in there and change some labels and I changed some backgrounds. But I took my syllabus, which is about a you know three-page, almost single-spaced document, threw it into Claude AI, said, write me a uh, short, approximately 60-second uh, script for a video. And then I put that video or uh, put that script into Pictory. 
and here's the video. And it's not too bad. It's reasonable. And it's got live action, you know, B-roll footage with, with the words. And then an AI voice that comes in, and which I chose. Cool tools. Awesome. Well, I'd like to share an AI tool as well. And I thought maybe I had already shared this, but even if I have, it's so cool that I don't care. Um, it's called upscale.media. It's a website and it's a paid for tool, but you can use it for free by just going to it. And essentially what happens is you upload a picture and that's under 1500 pixels by 1500 pixels and it will double the size or quadruple the size of the image without losing quality. And it also has the ability to uh, clean up the image uh, uh, the best you can. It doesn't work 100% of the time, but for for me, 80, 90% of the time, um, it works really well. And I've gone to like the Wikipedia comments to look for a picture of uh, John C. Calhoun or Susan B. Anthony or, you know, something from the time period they were in. And so it's a low, uh, uh, it's a low resolution scan. And I want to put it into a presentation for history class and it, it just looks terrible, right? But you can upscale 2X or 4X with upscale.media. It is cool. Fantastic. Well, Wes, where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, I'm a lot of places, and you can find all the links at westfriar.com slash after. How about you? Um, I, I, I hang out on Twitter, techsavvyteach. Uh, <laughs> the, the website formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, the <laughs> website formerly known as Twitter, where I'm a techsavvyteach. But hey, this is the Tech Situation. We're a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern time, somewhere in the middle of the night, if you're joining us from the UTC time zone, you can join us live. We broadcast over YouTube and Facebook. You can also download our podcast wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. You can go to our website at techsr.com. Also download the podcast there. Check out our show notes there. We love to share. It's something that the Wes and I both strongly believe in um, as pedagogist that we owe it to you uh, to elevate the conversation and share the things we find interesting. Um, so if you can't join us live and we wish you would, then please check out um, our downloadable. So stay safe, stay savvy. We'll see you next week on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night. Good night, everybody.